This is episode 124 with senior staff editor at the New York Times, 253 marathoner, and one of the most exciting journalists in the running space today, Ms. Lindsay Krauss. Hey runners, welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm excited to be here. I'm coming off the flu and a strained ab muscle near my ribs from coughing so hard. It's been a rough couple weeks, but I'm back to running. I actually slipped on my run earlier this morning, uh, falling on some ice, banged up my knee pretty good, but it should be fine. The only thing I really hurt was my ego. Running can definitely be humbling sometimes. But we are back, and I couldn't be more thrilled to share my conversation with Lindsay Krauss with you. She's changing how the sport of running operates, from inside of it, but also as a journalist breaking some of the biggest stories in sports today. If the name Lindsay Krauss sounds familiar, you've probably read some of her work. In fact, last year, she was the first woman to win the George Hirsch Journalism Award for coverage of distance running. She's a senior staff editor and OpDocs producer at the New York Times, and her most read and watched work includes How the Shalane Flanagan Effect Works, Nike Told Me to Dream Crazy Until I Wanted a Baby, and I Was the Fastest Girl in America Until I Joined Nike. There are also even more links to her work, notes, and social media profiles on the Strength Running blog, so don't miss the article that accompanies this episode. Lindsay is one of the foremost voices for women in running, helping us better understand structural inequities that lead to gender inequality and power disparities in the sport. She earned a history degree from Harvard University while competing in track and field and cross country, and her opinion documentary video, Walk, Run, Cha-Cha, earned a nomination for an Academy Award. I also just want to take a quick break and thank our sponsor, Inside Tracker, for supporting the podcast. They're an innovative blood testing company that gives endurance athletes the tools to better understand their performance, recovery, and training. It's like getting a complete blood panel done, except they test for stress hormones and other biomarkers that could indicate you're overtraining, not fully recovered, even not eating enough, or not training enough. Then they give you personalized, actionable suggestions for moving your numbers into the ideal range that's custom to your unique needs. I'm a really big fan of this company and all the work they're doing to help runners better understand what's going on inside of our bodies. They've generously offered a 10% discount, which amounts to a lot, on any of their blood testing services at InsideTracker.com. Just use code STRENGTHRUNNING, all one word, to claim your savings. All right, let's get to our conversation with Lindsay, who's at the forefront of current affairs in the running world, highlighting how power is often unjustly wielded by the powerful against those with very little of it. But she's not just a running journalist, she's a runner too, and quite a fast one at that. Just this past fall, she raced 2.53 at CIM, scoring a sub-3 marathon and improving on her PR by a massive six minutes. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ms. Lindsay Krauss. Lindsay Krauss, welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's it's really great to meet you. I feel like I've been reading your work, following you on Twitter, and sort of immersing myself in what you do for quite a while now. So this is very exciting to finally be able to chat with you and talk a little bit more in depth about all things Lindsay. Oh, thanks. It's exciting to be here. One of the things that uh, about you that really resonates with me is that you are both breaking some of the biggest stories in running, but also living the sport and training and racing competitively. And I, I think that's such uh, an authentic sort of uh, uh, angle uh, about you. And I think your passion for the sport really comes through in your work. Um, do you think being a runner yourself is helpful as you report on all these big stories that you've been breaking? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that's been really fascinating for me is that kind of as my own life has evolved and um, as I've watched the lives of other runners, um, you know, their lives go on. It's it's almost it's given me the perspective of sort of, I guess, what stories aren't being told. Like, I think when I was younger, I used to think what was important was already being reported. Um, and it was only kind of as I 
was watching what other people were doing and kind of hearing whisperings about the real stories that people were going through and kind of actually understanding that disconnect between the stories that we tell about people and I guess the truth um, that I realized that maybe those stories just aren't actually being told and that beyond that, maybe people would care. Um, Of course, doing all of this stuff, I didn't know if anyone would care, but I was really excited just being a runner to even have the opportunity to understand and empathize and connect with what a lot of the other athletes are going through, especially women. And it was amazing to realize that it wasn't that these stories weren't important. They just weren't being told. Um, and I think absolutely being a runner is is what made the difference for me. Yeah, I think representation really matters in this regard, too. I mean, the incredible resurgence of women's distance running right now in the United States is something to behold. And, and I think without more women investigative journalists, you know, thinking about these issues, you're absolutely right. We wouldn't, we simply wouldn't have those stories out there and and we wouldn't get to understand such an important aspect to the sport. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you do look at who typically is a journalist or a sports journalist, it just, it really is men. Um, it, if you look at sort of sports desks across the country, um, broadcasts, r- newspapers, et cetera, um, it really is one of the only arenas where it's just kind of accepted that the journalists will be men and that a lot of the stories and the coverage will be men and, or will be of men. And I think that's, Granted, men are a huge part of sports, but I also wonder if partly why we think of athletes as men typically is because that's because we're covering mostly men and we're watching stories that are mostly about men. And then women, if they think they're really serious about sports, they watch men or they write about men. Um, I've I've experienced that for myself, I think, as a writer. I've written a lot about men as well, but it's like it's really only been for me when I started to realize the connections between my own narrative as an athlete and kind of the narratives of other athletes out there, like we're here too. And I've just, it's been a real honor and so satisfying for me to realize that our stories actually do matter a lot. Um, And I think it does take having women in that reporting box um, to, to really get those stories out there. So that's been exciting for me. You know, I can't help but think about politics when you say things like that, because, you know, I think about representation. I think about most of the country thinking a politician is kind of an older white guy. Yes. And, you know, now that we're, we're we have the 2018 midterms, which is kind of this historic election, and we're seeing so much uh, different representation in Congress. Yep. And, and I think, you know, this is such uh, uh, a almost parallel phenomenon, because now we have uh, legislators and politicians focusing on different issues that affect their communities and people more like them. So I think it's, uh, I, I think representation is just hugely important. I think you're absolutely right. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that the 2016 election hasn't influenced um, my view on a lot of this and just sort of who is telling our stories and who's deciding who belongs in the positions that, you know, both the stories that we actually cover, like who's deciding those and then who's deciding who's covering them. I think that's really important as well. We saw that that was a major issue during um, the elections and it's, it's really, it's who's kind of telling our cultural narrative, who's telling us who we are and um, who's important. And I haven't always had, no one's ever really said to me, like, you've got to go cover this stuff. But I knew it was an important and I do work at the Times and I do have access to the ability to tell these stories if I want to. And I think it was tremendously empowering for me as well to realize that these stories are important. And there are political connections to this. I think I think if, I mean, we're, of course, we're seeing this directly through sport right now with, you know, different athletes, especially athletes that may not be from um, sort of mainstream athlete or who we think of as like a mainstream empowered athlete kind of taking that pedestal and making their points. I think that's amazing. Um, But for me, I was also thinking about how we're just, we're not always um, the stories that we're telling about women 
especially in sports, it's like sports is really, it's all subjective. None of it actually matters. And so if we're only letting men tell those stories as well, and we're only letting men have the stories that are most important in sports, I think that says tremendous things about the rest of our culture, where there are more constraints in place um, to actually make things equal and where we have decided that, you know, equal access is important in sports, particularly as you, you know, as, as we, as women graduate from schools um, where we do have, you know, Title IX in place, I think that's when we see where the power really lies and it goes to men. And I think that sports and in particular distance running where women really are ascendant right now, I think that's a place where we can really kind of flip that narrative and allow women to lead, which in sports rarely happens. I mean, unless, of course, it's a sport where, um, you know, sports that I really enjoy watching, like gymnastics or figure skating. But those are sports for young little girls. And I think with distance running, these are um, these are women, in many cases, older women, um, women in their 30s that are achieving a lot. And I think that's really help, help, um, healthy from a political and a social and just kind of like a women's empowerment perspective for us to get that message out there that these women aren't just inspiring and they're not just embattled they're they're really excellent and um it's been a real again a real pleasure to get to show women in that way yeah and i and i'm really happy to be talking about this i admittedly have become much more involved just uh you know from a personal perspective in yeah. this issue i think because I have two daughters and I'm just, you know, so adamant about giving them the opportunities that, that I had as an athlete um, yeah. growing up and, you know, just all the different uh, ways that, you know, my athletic career was supported and encouraged. And, you know, I, I had those choices and those opportunities yeah. and for my daughters. I, I want them to have that as well. And with you talking about, you know, who t is telling the story? I remember you talking in a previous interview, uh, and, and I was, as I was preparing for this, it, it really struck me. You, you mentioned that as a history major, you were kind of taught that, you know, who is writing the history is almost just as important as, you know, the facts and, and the history itself that's being written down. It really frames yes. what is being told. And, and I, and I think that is, is a powerful way to, uh, to think about these stories. And now that we have more women in leadership positions, women kind of at the forefront here, we're seeing new stories and older stories being told in different ways. And uh, uh, thank you for majoring in something that, uh, like myself, I was a political science major and everyone kept asking me, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to be a, a congressman? And I was like, I don't think so. But I, I love that you kind of majored in something that I'll put in air quotes as useless because it really it makes you think properly about these kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, I think what was really fascinating, I'm just going to put in a plug for kind of studying the humanities, and in my case, history, I think, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I I grew up in, um, in New England and in Rhode Island, and they really taught us history in my high school was sort of, it was facts, it was memorizing, it was, you know, learning information and kind of committing that to memory. And when I went to college, it was interesting because, history was more telling us to question who wrote the history. Um, I don't know if that was just where I went to college or if that's what all college places are like, but I thought it was so valuable. It taught me that everything I thought about my hometown and about how I got there, it was really just one narrative. Um, and it was in many cases, not a narrative that I completely connected with. I just didn't question the degree to which I connected with that narrative. And I think Right now, I think a lot of women are seeing that with sports coverage that we're telling that we're hearing part of our narrative being told, but not necessarily in a way that we completely connect with. And I think there's a real opportunity there. I mean, I think we've seen with some of the stuff that I've had the chance to do this year that there's a huge audience for this stuff that hasn't necessarily been brought in. Um, and it's really exciting that The Times is is getting involved in that and that we we do want to kind of tell these not alternative histories, but just many different versions of the same story. I think it just adds to a richer story of who we are and what we value and the sports that we play. Yeah. And I want to go into a little bit more detail about your work and some of the stories that you've written. You know, you've published pieces in the Times that I, I think are really changing the sport. You know, these are some of the biggest stories from uh, your piece about the Shalane Flanagan effect to the Mary Kane piece to Allison Felix. And, 
you know, besides fostering new conversations, and, and I think this is one of them, and just reaching even more people, I think it's really great. But, you know, I, I think, um, you know, what effect has your work had on women in the sport besides fostering those conversations? You know, have, have there been actual tangible changes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think what's been really exciting is that as I was working on that pregnancy, that maternity story for Nike, it's been interesting because it's it's paralleled almost like changes in my own career as well. I think all in really exciting ways. Um, maybe a year and a half ago or so, or a year ago, um, you know, I got a new boss and I was sort of like, yeah, I've really got to make a case for why I should be here, like why he should invest in me. Um, and I think that was really healthy. Um, I mean, I think, I think he took it, I, I don't think he was saying that to me. Um, I have like a whole other job working in, um, I, I produce our short documentary series called Opdocs, but I really wanted to feel valuable and that, you know, if I were making a case at the end of the next year for like what I did in my, on my own here, um, that I wouldn't just attribute it to a team that I had made some very important um, contributions on my own. And, and he wanted me to do that too. It was great. Um, and I'd never really had anyone before that was like, just have an impact, just do something that you think needs to happen. And, you know, I'm, I'm at an age where I'm potentially thinking about having kids on my own. And I've had a lot of, uh, friends who have had kids and kind of watched their experience. A lot of them are serious runners of varying degrees and I've watched them kind of have their own experiences. And I'd known from talking to elite runners, professional runners about the challenges that they faced. And I'd even reported that before. Um, and I kind of thought no one thought it was a big deal because, and I think I was right. No one did think it was a big deal. And that's what taught me in the, well, that's when I really started to think about framing um, and the idea of just really owning a story and just like coming out hard on it and saying, look, here's the information and here's what we're going to, here's what you should think about it. And I think that's been the real benefit of working in our opinion department, particularly our opinion video department, is that we're able to say that with words. We're able to break information and we're able to even put a lens on it. Like in this case, we were able to convey that through Alicia Montano. Um it, but then we were also able to do it in video, which I think for for the New York Times, that's really exciting to be able to get to an emotional level or kind of use a visual vocabulary and an emotional vocabulary with viewers that the written word just can't achieve on its own. And so that was really exciting, not only from a, um, from a professional pers um, perspective, but also just from a creative perspective. And what was even more exciting was that people did care, like they really cared, um, not just athletes, not just professional runners, not just mothers, but really the entire country and even the entire world cared. And for me, that was that was so important to be able to show my to be able to show my bosses, but in particular, to be able to show myself that the things that I was interested in actually do matter, um, which I'd never really felt before. And I think that went beyond just me and my um, and my career, but it ultimately did what everyone said would never happen, which is that Nike changed, which everyone said that if Nike changed, the whole industry would change. So I was just like, okay, well, we'll change Nike. Um, and we're not just going to change, you know, the, the athlete agents there, um, the athlete reps there in the marketing department, we're going to go and do something that, you know, the C-suite cannot ignore there. Um, and then in August, they did change their policy. They created a policy where now women are protected um, from performance-related penalties for um, not only their pregnancy, but also afterwards. And that's astonishing. That's, to me, that feels like not just equal rights, but making special con special concessions for recognizing that women are different than men. They're not just operating on a male contract. So that was tremendously exciting just from like from a policy level of saying, I want to change this policy and then changing the policy. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, that's like your your dream as a journalist, right? To have a real world impact and, and to actually see some positive change from your work. Yeah, I mean, that was incredible. And then, you know, from there, when I started working with Mary, that was a little more nebulous. Mary, sorry, Mary Kane, um, the athlete who... Um, came forward to talk about how she was the fastest girl in America. And then when she kind when she started running for Nike with Alberto Salazar, um, she was caught up in an abusive system that um, really critiqued her weight, um, subjected her to public weighings in front of teammates, and ultimately led her to the point where 
she was having suicidal thoughts and was cutting herself and was a very extreme example of a story that is unfortunately so widespread and so tolerated to the point where it's almost normal. Um, And that was a bigger challenge because, you know, if someone's going to trust you with a story like that, first of all, you have to help everyone understand who is this girl? Who is this woman? She disappeared from the scene. You may have remembered her a few years ago, but we don't just want this to influence the running world in order for something to really, really have an impact. We need to go bigger than that. And so you're taking this slightly complicated story. I mean, every story is has its own specifics and you're trying to not only draw the viewer into the specifics of her stories so that they know her intimately, but to also draw out these broader general, like this general sense of outrage that I think a lot of the country is experiencing right now. Um, and also harp, um, kind of zeroing in on the idea that like America all every American agrees that it loves its girls. I think America's a little more ambivalent about what happens to them when they become women. But with Mary, we were able to say, look, this is about girls. If we love our girls, we need to talk about this. And what she was experiencing, sort of a coerced eating disorder or an eating disorder under duress, um, is something that a lot of girls face, if not directly from pressure from their coaches, then just from structural pressures. And I think that's in some ways, the harder thing to get around. And so we weren't sure what exactly we wanted to have change there when we made it. All we knew was that we that we needed to make sure lots of people watched this and lots of people understood what happened and lots of people understood on a visceral level what needed to change. And that definitely worked. I mean, it was, we put that out and I think it was one of the top 100 piece. It was the 42nd top viewed piece in the country and I mean, sorry, in the New York Times and it um, it was the top viewed piece on the New York Times for all of November. It was it was really crazy. I mean, when when do people ever watch something about a story that's very normal? Um, and yeah, so that that was incredible. And then what happened after that was that Nike launched an investigation into those stories. Um more recently, Salazar has been sanctioned um, for not only his doping, but also for his abusive practices, um, which lead, which means he might um, at some point face a lifetime ban from the sport. And, in, But most importantly, I think a lot of girls listen to Mary's story and know that if they are in similar situations, that's not right and that they should push back on it and advocate for themselves, just like Mary did. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, that's important. And as a father, you know, it's it's kind of like this nightmare scenario that you 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 hope and pray that your daughter never finds herself in. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'd love to talk some about those structural problems. You know, the environment that she found herself in. You know, what can we do about that? Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that a lot of women don't have women coaches, and they're surrounded by a team of male coaches. And I don't think that necessarily that means that, you know, all of a sudden this abusive or negative environment is going to be created. But I do think, like we were talking about earlier, representation matters. Is it a problem that there just aren't as many female coaches in the higher ranks of distance running coaching out there? Absolutely. And I mean, I think you see that not only in distance running, but in all sports. And I think it's a real problem. Um, And I think it's a problem not only because girls should be surround girls and boys should be surrounded by women in positions of leadership. I, I don't know that women are necessarily better coaches per se, although I do think that having more women in those positions would probably help get at fixing whatever these structural issues are that are causing those kinds of problems. Um, especially for teenage for little girls and for teenage girls um, and young women. But I think the bigger issue when it comes to coaching is actually just about access and equity um, for women. Again, I think that America cares a lot about its girls. It cares a lot about equal opportunity for girls. I think it cares a lot less about equal opportunities for for women um, and kind of what happens to them when they get older, um, you know, particularly you know, when they start to reach the age where maybe they should be having kids, like that's when things start to get really hard for women. And I think that we should be making sure that more women have access to the same kinds of jobs where they have the same kinds of power as men do. And coaching is a position of power. So 
Um, that's another thing that I think um, we're trying to work on here at the Times is to kind of, these are the things that people don't question. And they do sometimes, but I think there's a there's a lot more that we could be discussing there about why can girls play, but women can't lead. I like that. You know, I've, I've also been thinking a lot about kind of not the, there's the coaching side, but then there's also kind of the, the science that informs the coaches that help them, you know, determine what the training looks like, helps them structure workouts, helps them with recovery. And I also understand that a lot of the science, the studies, the research that's being done in uh, the arena of sports is done on men. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about, about why, why that's problematic and how that can be doing a disservice to women? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a disservice to men and women because I think you want, you want, we live in a society where we're trying to make everything equal. I think we just, we need to be, and in sports, if we're if we're going to actually get behind and own the idea that women that we value female athletes, we need to be studying them too. I mean, especially as we like, I have women and girls coming to me a lot now, asking me where can I find resources um, to protect my health or to understand what's going on with my body. And they're right. Those resources aren't easy to find. Um, and uh, there are some some great scholars and scientists that are leading the charge on that, but it's not mainstream right now. And it's certainly not easily, easily available. And especially, you know, if you're a teenage girl, it's already confusing what's going on with your body. And you know, how that might, may or may not be influencing your athletic performance. And I think that's a real shame that it, it could be so hard to not only get the information, but even to have the information exist. And I think, unfortunately, the outcome there, if you don't have this information and girls are comparing themselves to a male trajectory or a male model of what, of what success is, particularly athletic success, I think they probably just think they're not normal or they're not good um, or they're not doing things in the way that they should be. And then they leave the sport. And that's the real risk there is that then we all lose. We lose all this potential um, when really all we had to do was tell these girls, the, get these girls the information that they need. You know, I competed uh, cross country, track and field in high school and college. And, and I certainly remember uh, girls and women on the two teams throughout my entire running career who, because of puberty, because of changes in their body, had different issues and problems with their training. And I do vividly remember that there was literally no, no real resource for them. Uh, I, I think there was maybe one female assistant coach in my entire high school and college career uh, available to the women's teams, uh, maybe one female athletic trainer in the, uh, the trainer's department. And, you know, I can't help but think back over all of the injuries, all of the, the problems that they had and re the reduced performances. And just think that if we knew more about their athletic trajectory, their development, the impact of training on their development and vice versa, we would just be able to have a much more uh, healthy and also uh, more competitive female teams. And, and I think that's exciting for, you know, colleges and high schools. I think it's exciting for the women. I think it's exciting for coaches to be able to know how to better coach their athletes. So, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's just this no brainer kind of situation to learn more about uh, how, women respond to running and, and, and what the, those kinds of changes are uh, as they get older, uh, because ultimately coaches, I think, want to be better coaches. And if the science isn't there, it does become more difficult. Absolutely. And I think this is another way, another place that sports and sort of the culture, our society, our politics, I think there's a lot of intersectionality there where, there's a huge stigma still around and a huge amount of misinformation around like women's bodies in general. There's almost like a taboo about talking about it, particularly for men. A lot of, there are a lot of men who are scientists right now. And so it's like, if no one understands, if no one even wants to feels comfortable talking about women's bodies or about women's health, um, then who's going to study it? Um, 
And I think we really need to just kind of embrace that women's bodies are normal. They're just not like male bodies. And um, we really need to study them as their as their own thing and just kind of invest in that and not just not not consider the specific set of concerns around a women's body as, you know, problems or issues, but rather just like natural biology and that we can talk about it in a normal way. I mean, it was really cool when we were working on the Mary Kane piece. I mean, I think at first I was working with all men on it, um, on my team. And at first it was like talking about periods. It was like, oh my God, is this okay? Um, and by the end of it, it was like, <laughs> it was just like a normal thing to talk about, um, you know, about like RDS and um, about amenorrhea and all of these things. I think at first it felt weird. And then by the end of it, it was like, no, this is just totally normal. And the reason why you need to know about it is that um, if girl, if this doesn't happen for girls, they... Um, they break their bones and ultimately they face fertility issues and everyone is, feels comfortable talking about fertility issues. So, um, you know, it's like, or at least there's no stigma there in the same way. Um, so it's like, you've got to talk about the whole thing and you've got to be comfortable doing that. And I think the more that we can do this, the more um, women will be healthier and probably better performers as well. Yeah, I think there's almost like a renaissance right now among men being more comfortable talking yeah. about these kinds of issues. And and maybe that's just maybe that perspective is maybe my bias because I have daughters and, and I'm just becoming more aware of these issues as I get a little bit older. But, um, yeah, I certainly think it's uh, it's something that, you know, I, just as a quick example, I just interviewed a pelvic floor physical therapist about mm -hmm you know, getting back into running after pregnancy and mm -hmm. running through pregnancy and, and all the issues among uh, with that. And I certainly have no expertise or, or even, you know, a personal kind of relationship to that issue. But I know that half my audience is women. And I want to, yeah. you know, talk about issues that, that affect them, because that's going to help them become better runners. Yeah. And I think, um, I think men, asking questions and listening is really, really critical for not having this just be an issue that only women have to deal with. Yeah. And admittedly, I feel kind of dumb a lot of the times <laughs> asking questions where I, I feel like the answer is probably common knowledge among women, but because I'm not a woman, I, I simply don't know. And uh, yeah, you certainly have to get comfortable with that. Um, yeah. Lindsay, have you ever, have you ever gotten, I'm sure you have some kind of pushback or uh, criticism for writing about women in in distance running over the last year or so? Yeah, actually, not not really. Um, I mean, I think I think um, with the maternity stuff, it started a really healthy debate around what do women deserve in terms of benefits. It was really a conversation about benefits that really tracked in a pretty obvious way with what the rest of society is dealing with right now. I mean, America has some of the worst maternity policies in the entire world, and all of our freelancers are vulnerable to that. Um, many of our full-time employees are also vulnerable to these laws and suffer because of them. And so I think people went into that conversation with a lot of the same views that they have for kind of society writ large. But what we were trying to do there was say that, I mean, America also loves its Olympians. So um, if you're, so I, we were thinking that maybe America and America really cheers for these women that are being paraded around by marketing departments for their accomplishments. And so we thought maybe by highlighting that disconnect, we might be able to kind of re-energize that discussion in a different and healthier way. And I think that worked. Um, of course, from there, you do get a little bit of pushback, um, by people that disagree that women deserve any benefits, um, when it comes to childbirth. Um, and that's just a different way of thinking. Um, so that's to be expected, but no, I mean, I think, I think I've been really pleasantly surprised by the overall reaction to a lot of the work that I've done, which I've tried to keep pretty positive. Um, I, I think even when there have been, you know, critiques of sports, um, sports apparel companies, et cetera, it's always coming from a perspective of, look, no one knows this information. We don't think this is a necessarily like a company sponsored effort to target women. We're just going to try to get the information out there in a way that protects the people that are disclosing it and kind of keeps them safe from potential re ramifications um, or repercussions. And then from there, let 
kind of the culture and the companies decide for themselves. But I think, I think broadly people want to know the truth and I haven't felt any sort of um, critique for exposing that. Well, that's pleasantly surprising. I was, I was fearing you might say that the the trolls came out in full force after some of these stories, but that's great to hear. Not at all. I mean, I definitely have scrutinized the stuff that we've done pretty carefully to keep it just focused on one woman's story um, and kind of letting that one woman's story speak broadly and tried to avoid editorializing. And I think that that's, that's kind of helped a lot. Yeah. Do, do you can still consider yourself not a sports journalist? I know that you've said that once in the past, but. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a sports journalist insofar as I don't work for our sports desk. Um, they have a pretty robust group of uh, sports reporters that cover this stuff as well. Um, and I've never worked for them uh, aside from in a freelance capacity. And so at this point, I, I just still work in the opinion department where I always have. And um I'm sort of a, I guess, like a hybrid producer of our short documentary series called Opdocs and also a sort of, um, I guess, like contributing editor on gender and um, gender and culture through the lens of sports. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your own running, but, you know, you've mentioned uh, Opdocs just kind of in passing and you kind of refer to it as like, oh, yeah, that's kind of my main thing. Uh, but you were just at the Academy Awards because one of your short documentary videos was nominated for an Oscar. So I just wanted to say congratulations. That must have been an incredible experience. Thank you. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, yeah, I definitely, I mean, to your point about not being a sports journalist, I think a lot of women feel this way where they kind of have to, you know, maybe work twice as hard and, you know, be good at it um, in order to do what they want to do. And I've certainly felt that way um, in that my, my job for Opdocs is, is definitely a full-time job. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm doing, you know, the best that I possibly can at it, which t- tends to mean like we define that by, you know, impact um, the same as we do for an opinion video or by, you know, getting an Oscar nomination. So we've, um, we've been successful in that area as well. And so I'm the, I'm the senior series uh, producer for that, which means that I basically pick the videos, develop them and then, um, or pick the short documentary films, develop them and then kind of shepherd them through the production process. And in some cases run an Oscar campaign for the past year, which is what I've been doing since July um, for, for that film in particular. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, Now I'd love to know, you know, with all the work that you've done in the running space and and learning more about kind of the gender inequities, uh, but also just hanging out with some of these elite pro women, you know, has has your work impacted your own training in a certain way? And and I know we're going to get to some of your training and racing and all that, but mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're certainly uh, very talented. You know, you're very close to an Olympic trials qualifier, and so I, I can't help but think that hanging out with all these very accomplished distance runners is having some sort of an effect and rubbing off on you. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was thinking about it over the past year. And I mean, I wouldn't say I I hang out with a lot of elite distance runners. I think it's, it's healthy to have a little bit of space there. And I, but I really admire them, um, not only from a athletic perspective, but from a, um, from kind of a what they've overall achieved athletically, a lot of these women, um, athletically and also in the rest of their lives. And I think that a lot of female distance right female distance runners right now are just really smart and really interesting. And I've gotten a lot out of our um interactions and the times that I have spent time with with various athletes. Um and I've learned a lot from them. I, I was as I was thinking about it, I was thinking in some ways it, it does remind me of of a cross country team, like in college, maybe where, you know, you have like a varsity team and then maybe your JV. Um, and I do think that watching their victories and watching them do impossible things, like why wouldn't you apply that to yourself and say, you know, they did something that they didn't necessarily think was forecasted for them. Um, at least not in an essential way where it was definitely going to happen. Um, but they broke through and they achieved what they wanted to do. I mean, I think when Shalane won New York, when Shalane Flanagan won New York and, um, at age 36, it's like, you know, she almost didn't make the Olympics when she had a, a really 
in, in sort of that brutally hot Olympic um, marathon trials. And she did. And then she stayed in partly because her team, her teammates invested in her and then, and she invested in them. And then she broke through and had, you know, the career highlight that she probably spent her whole life dreaming about. And that's amazing. Um, and I thought, you know, why, why not me? I guess like, why not me as well? Why not try as well? Um, and I think that, again, watching all these women kind of go after their own things, it, it can't help but make you think it's it's within reach on your own, on my own level as well for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that, you know, you just set like a six minute PR in your 30s in the marathon yeah. is just huge. And I think that's a great example is just the fact that uh, a lot of these performances are set by by folks who are in their mid to late 30s and, mm -hmm. and not even with women. I mean, you have Meb Kaplesky right. winning Boston, I think he was 38 or 39. Like he yep. was, he was closer to 40. I mean, that's yep. just incredible. And then I think the, you know, the positive peer pressure that, you know, you have when you're surrounded by training partners, when you're surrounded by people who have similar goals, even if their goal might be, you know, breaking 220 in the marathon and yours is breaking 250, you know, you, you both have competitive racing goals and, and that, I think rubs off on you and, you know, you can't get away from the fact that, uh, you know, the ambitions of the people you surround yourself is almost contagious. Yeah. And I, that's been really exciting for me to see. I mean, I just wrote an article about this, but I didn't really realize that I could continue to, you know, surprise myself athletically at this age. I had, a number of injuries, like years and years worth of injuries, kind of right around the time that I turned 30. And I think I just thought, well, this is it. Like we all hit some time where our trajectory changes athletically. And I guess that's right now. And I was sort of sad about that. Um, and I kept forcing it and forcing it. And then I realized I'd given up. Um, I wasn't even trying to hit a starting line anymore. I think this went on for like four years or something. And it was almost like by not trying anymore and then just kind of resetting and just like jogging a little bit. Then I was able, then I realized I did want to run another marathon again. And maybe just like, just getting to the starting line was all I needed to do for a really long time. I'd wanted to break three hours. Um, and that was when I, that was what was causing all my injuries. Um, and so this time when I just wanted to run a marathon, um, and I wound up running my best time ever. Um, I think I ran a 303 and I was so excited. And then I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to try again. And then I broke three hours. Um, and that was maybe two years ago. And then I saw all these other women who are also, you know, pretty much the same athletic caliber as me, which is to say like, they've all had periods where they're chasing the fat, the fast pack. They're not like in that fast pack. Um, so, you know, we're not doing it because we face this external pressure um, to succeed. And I figured if they were qualifying for the Olympic marathon trials, I should just try too. Um, even though a 617 for me is like literally a sprint. Um, and that process was so rewarding. It was just like knowing that it didn't matter if I failed, but that I was trying anyway. It was just tremendously satisfying. Um, I remember at the end thinking like, kind of like expecting to feel this like rush of euphoria or this like, I don't know, I guess like some people call it joy, other people call it a runner's high. And for me, it was like, I just felt really happy. Um, and I think that was because oftentimes when I, like, when I was in that period of the injury cycle, trying to get trying to break three hours and trying to um, do this thing that I thought was so hard, I think I would show up to every starting line feeling like, um, feeling almost like I didn't deserve to be there. And I was hoping to get away with something that I didn't really deserve, like to run this time that was like super fast and way faster than someone like me could run. Um, and then by the time I did line up to the starting line and I was going to go try to break three hours, it was like, I just knew I could do it. And so it wasn't actually that exciting because it was like the excitement had already unfolded. The excitement was in the process of getting there. Um, and so when I finished, it was like, of course, I knew I could do that. And I did. Um, and so instead of like extreme joy, I just felt satisfaction. And I think that's, that's something I want to think about more about how when you actually hit something that you want, you tend to only do that when you've already know you've earned it. And that comes in the preparation, the process, not in the race itself.
that is such a great lesson right there. And, and I think that resonates with a lot of runners who have, you know, a goal and they finally accomplish the goal. And it's yeah. just this intense feeling of satisfaction and joy and happiness and just almost pride of just, you know, yeah. you worked so hard for this and you finally accomplished it. Yeah. And you mentioned writing about this recently. You know, the article for our listeners is I am 35 and running faster than I ever thought possible. Uh, really great piece. I recommend everyone look it up at the Times and, and read it. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you have actually pondered quitting the sport a bunch of times. And, and I think that is another thing that most runners can probably relate to, um, you know, halfway through a long run, we're always wondering, why are we here? <laughs> what am I doing? But I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your marathon journey over the last couple of years, because, you know, you've come a long way. I think you ran in the 320s for your first marathon, yeah. and you've just improved enormously since then. And now, you know, you ran 253 at, was it the Sacramento Marathon? Uh, CIM, yeah. CIM, okay. Um, I mean, what is, what, what is this kind of uh, very present feeling among runners all the time that, oh, this is going to be my last race? And then we finally accomplish a big goal. We raise the bar a little bit for ourselves. And, and that almost spurns us on to continue on and to continue training. Why, why do so many of us consider quitting when I don't think we're actually even close to our potential? So what I love about running actually is that like technically right now I've quit the sport, right? I've run like, um, I don't know, probably like 60 miles in the past two months, which for me is like, and that's probably like staggered over. I probably like run 10 times or something in the past two months or maybe even three months since my race at this point. And what I love about running is that you can literally do it however you want. Like when I like technically quote unquote quit the sport, I just didn't run anymore. And then I started running again. Um, I really love I, I love the sort of continuum that you can calibrate your participation in the sport at any degree that you want. Um, uh, and I'm getting married in the summer and I, um, I kind of want to run one more marathon, but I don't want to run. I don't want to even aspire to run the kind of mileage that I typically do just because it takes way too much time. And I, I, I don't, I don't want to allocate my time priorities that way, but I, you know, I can still just do a marathon however I want. Um, I just may not, you know, run a really fast time. Um, like every time I run a marathon, I don't have to announce that I'm doing it. I can just keep it to myself and show up if I want to. Like I've run half marathons plenty of times where I'm not fit and it's basically jogging, but I'm still running a marathon. I'm still a runner, I guess, like in that moment. Um, you know, when you're injured, your friends will still introduce you as a runner, even even though you haven't run in a couple of months. And I really love with the sport that that's all totally up to you. It's all just your own. Um, you never have to announce anything. You never have to sign up for anything. You can sign up for a lot of marathons like a month before. Um, I think that's really beautiful that it can always be there with you, but in whatever way works in the context of your life at that time. Um, at the same time, I think that a lot of runners are, you know, a little OCD and do want to kind of know that they're doing something, that they're in it, that they are a runner, that they are racing, that they are training for a marathon. Um, and that kind of absolute thinking, I think, can lead people to quit the sport more than, you know, is, necess is necessary. Like, you just take a break um, and without having to, like, fully define that for yourself. And I think when I was younger, I used to, um, it used to be kind of comforting to tell myself that, I don't know, to like impose some rules around it or something. And it's been really freeing. And, um, you know, I guess in my thirties or whenever went to realize that I can actually just do this however I want and whatever level or it, that means that it feels appealing at the time. Well put. I think there's just so much flexibility with the sport of running that you can do it in so many different ways. You can train seriously. You can not train so seriously. And, and I think that is where a lot of runners fall into this pit of despair because they're putting so much pressure on themselves yeah. you know, to hit a certain mileage level or the fact that their easy run has to be at a certain pace. And if it's any slower, you know, why even bother running? And yeah. there's so many different ways that, that you could, you could run, you can cross train and you can always come back to the sport. Like you say, although yeah. then if you don't put it on Instagram, did it really happen? 
Oh, I don't even put half of my runs on Strava. I just, I don't know. But my, my favorite thing, actually, I've, I've always been like this, but if I'm training for a race, I will wear my watch. I will, like, I will check the times. I think it's also helpful to know, you know, are you healthy? Are you overtraining? Are you undertraining, et cetera. But when I'm just running, cause I want to, which is most of my life, I guess. Um, cause you can't be training hard all the time. That's really no way to live, particularly when you have other things going on. Um, I just don't even bring my watch. I just go running. And I think that's something I really like about it. Um, the idea that it's just for me and that I'm not actually showing off to other people um, or, or performing. I think there are so many, especially for women, there are so many elements of our life where we do have to perform or where we want to perform, but running is not that for me. It's, it's, it's really just for me. And I mean, I wrote about this in my essay a little bit. I think that's part of why running really appeals to a lot of women, especially, you know, women who are out of college if you look at for men, there are, I think, more professional opportunities and like ways to stay in the sport um, or stay in sports in general. Um, there's more basketball. There's more minor leagues. There's more of these like kind of farm teams. Um, but for women, there isn't that the same way uh, in many cases. And so I think one reason that we love running is that, you know, you don't need a league to participate. You don't need permission. Um, you can just literally go do it. And then if you like it and you feel like you're good at it, you might want to race. Um, and I think that's a really cool option for us that, um, that has led us to embrace the sport at pretty high levels right now, particularly in a time socially or in society where we may feel like we don't have a lot of control or power or we do need permission to do other things with running we can just go do it and we can do it however we want whenever we want and at any different level yeah i think there's so much uh so much to love about running and you're right that the the flexibility the freedom of it all i think is very alluring to a lot of folks uh, particularly women and uh i think too that <clears throat> You know, it's it's possible to to take it as seriously or unseriously as you want, and and I think that is that's exciting because you know with a lot of other sports you either have to do it all the way or there's almost no opportunity to even participate in the sport unless you're competing or playing in an organized game, and, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that makes running very unique. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Lindsay, I'd love to ask you some random questions. I do not have. Uh, I wasn't able to put these into some kind of coherent conversation, but uh, I've learned a bunch of things for, about you as we as I prepared for this conversation, and I just wanted to to know a little bit more about you. I found out that you were a consultant for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What did you do for them? That's so cool. Yeah, um, back when I graduated from college, yeah, from college, you know, I moved to New York without a job, and um, I was a global health and history major in college. And um, so I just, I was trying to get a job in journalism. Um, and so I was working for all these writers on the side um, who would just kind of like hand me around from, from person to person. And, um, but for my, for my main job, I, I was just doing something where I wanted to make a difference. Um, and in some ways it was really helpful training for what I'm doing now. But so I was a consultant for the Bill and Linda Gates foundation, like usually working on um, some of the top diseases that kill children around the world. Um, like pneumonia, for example, is one of them. Um, uh, and it was good training because it taught me how to build awareness um or like build a conversation around topics that no one ever wants to talk about or like topics that are kind of in the background but that um but that we don't have a reason to talk about and so of course I wasn't necessarily planning to do that job as a way to do the job that I have now but I think those same skills like global health is not a sexy topic. Like no one really wants to talk about it, but I don't know that people necessarily wanted to talk about like maternity leave or eating disorders or whatever, like these things, people want to like cheer for those people, but they don't necessarily want to know the problems. Um, and so I think that it was a, it was actually really good training for, for figuring out how to build awareness around issues that, you know, are kind of in the shadows as opposed to in the spotlight. Um, I, I'm really into that book range. Um, Oh, um, and I think it it actually has described my career to me inadvertently in a lot of ways. 
yeah, I read that book last summer while I was on vacation. And I know that I've recommended it a bunch of times. Uh, I made my wife buy it for uh, a Christmas gift for one of her colleagues at work, just because I, I think it's so powerful. Yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Reading it, I was like, oh, this sounds like me. I've done a lot of re- random weird stuff, but totally. they all kind of connect in these, these different ways. And I think sometimes the most interesting jobs are the ones that you can't really apply to and the ones that you kind of like build for yourself. And I wish that more, more kind of young people would, would kind of take comfort in that, that it all might be building somewhere. You just don't necessarily know where yet. And that's okay. Right. I've, I'm certainly a good case study on just kind of creating your own job uh, with what I do now. Now, you mentioned uh, working with some authors, and I learned that you work for Josh Four, I think, yeah. is that, uh, for his book, yeah. Moonwalking yeah. with Einstein. Now, Lindsay, I have this book on my bookshelf right next to me. I'm looking at it right now. I've had it for almost a year and a half, maybe. I think it was for my birthday in 2018. Can you sell me on reading this? Because I'm just having a hard time picking it up. Wait, sorry, what? Can I what with you? Sell me on reading this book because I've I've had a really hard time picking it up, even though it sounds fascinating. I always find a reason to pick up a different one first. I thought that book was extraordinary. I mean, if you think about it, it's sort of like the science of how we remember and the science of why we forget, um, all kind of told through the lens of, this sort of subculture of memory savants, which are this is kind of like esoteric group of people that like like to go around and just memorize things, and you know they build these things called me- memory palaces, which is um, they use almost like mnemonics to remember um, these really complicated, basically complicated constructs that are difficult to keep in mind. And I think for any of us, our memory is something that we kind of take for granted and don't necessarily interrogate, but um, Josh does that for us. And he kind of, he approaches it as this sort of everyman who, you know, remembers things um, on the same way as any of us. And he actually becomes a memory competitor and a memory champion and teaches us these tricks. And um, all through this like kind of fascinating tapestry of characters and, um and experiences and kind of scientific uh, probing that I never really occurred to me to really think about, but he talks about it in a really accessible and engaging way. Josh is, Josh is super smart and, and a great writer. So I highly recommend reading it. All right. You've sold me. I'm definitely going to read this book very soon then. <laughs> now, what about you? Are you going to be writing a book anytime soon? I know there's a lot of people who would uh, crave to read a book about a lot of the issues that you're writing about in, in the sport. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I What I really need right now is to kind of do an overhaul of my priorities, I guess, for, for 2020. And I think now that the... Um, now that the Oscars are over, uh, I think I really have an opportunity to kind of refresh and think through what I want to accomplish for next year. And I think a book... I only want to write a book if I feel like it'll be valuable to people and that I have something specific to say. Um, I think last year was such a fascinating experience for me that um, now I feel like I would have more to say, but um, I don't think my story is over yet. And I think my story will inform whatever that book winds up being if I do decide to write one. But really what I wish, I mean, I'm sure every viewer on or every listener to your, um, to your show agrees, but I just wish I could like have more hours in the day <laughs> um to figure out how to uh, how to balance between like my regular job um my sports reporting um marathon running in my case also a wedding and then I would love to write, write a book but I'm just not sure when <laughs> well it sounds like you just have all this free time Lindsay so you should yeah. be able to put it in there somewhere yeah <laughs> well where can we better connect with you and your work if folks want to go down a Lindsay Krauss rabbit hole yeah, sure. I mean, all my work for the Times is archived on our on our site. Um, I think there's like a Times tag uh, with my name on it. And then uh, I'm on social media and I, I do really love hearing from people. It, it's where I get a lot of my best ideas from, um, like Instagram and Twitter. So I just really do love when people engage with me there. So um, my my handles are just my name, um, Lindsay Krause. And uh, yeah, I, I love getting notes from, from uh, readers and viewers and just kind of runners and just regular people alike. I mean, 
it's it's great. So um, reach out to me, however. All right. Well, I'm going to link to uh, your bio page on the New York Times so folks can check out every single article and uh, op-doc that you've worked on and also your social handles. I uh, definitely recommend folks to check out the Strength Running blog. We'll link out to all that stuff. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here, for your time, and for all the work that you're continuing to do. Don't stop. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And there we have it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if so, an honest review on Apple Music is incredibly appreciated. As always, you can find show notes, links to books, resources, training programs, videos, and more that we discussed on the show at strengthrunning.com. I also want to thank Inside Tracker for sponsoring today's show. They're a health analytics company that tests for over 40 different blood biomarkers. And based on your physiology, they offer you custom solutions to help you optimize any areas that might be outside of what your personal zones might be. So if you're training for a difficult race, maybe you want to ramp up your recovery because you haven't been feeling very good, or you're just a passionate running geek like me who's always looking for more ways to improve, you can get 10% off any test that they offer at insidetracker.com with code STRENGTHRUNNING at checkout. It's not case sensitive, and it can be used for any tier that they offer from the affordable do-it-yourself kit to the ultimate package. Just use code STRENGTHRUNNING to claim your 10% savings at Inside Tracker. Just don't do what I did and get a bunch of blood drawn in the morning only to go summon a mountain at altitude an hour later. Some lessons just have to be learned the hard way. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions, don't hesitate to reach out. My email is support at strengthrunning.com. And I'm always here to help. Talk to you soon.